Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 343. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 343 you're listening to. My guest today is podcast engineer, content producer, and thought leader Tanner Campbell, who works in what is now a subcategory of the audio industry, the podcast industry. Tanner ended up closing his main base brick and mortar recording studio in 2021 to focus on producing audio dramas. And he currently operates the Gutai studio in Denver, Colorado, where we have a great conversation. Tanner and I originally met on Clubhouse. He's one of the many people I met there and have brought on the show. And I thought that his experience in the world of podcasting would be uh, great for some of you to listen to. So very excited to have Tanner come on. Tanner Campbell coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's just talk about some random thoughts. You know, I sat down and I just, I didn't have anything planned for for this episode, for what I was going to talk about. So I just had a series of random thoughts that I, I thought I would share. Number one, if you've listened to the show for a long time, you've heard brief appearances from Moto the Bulldog. Of course, Moto the Bulldog passed away in October of 2020. We have added a new member to our family. We have Bear the French Bulldog, who is a puppy. I've never had a puppy. It's like having a newborn child, I will I will warn you. If you're thinking about having a puppy and uh, you don't have the time to devote, don't do it. <laughs> but he's sitting here next to me and it's, uh, it's nice to have a, a, another pet companion uh, to join me for each episode, which is great. Anyhow, there's a great new uh, series on Netflix called This Is Pop. That's about pop music. You know, it goes into various areas of the world of music that maybe some of you are all too familiar with, maybe some of you are not familiar with at all. I found it fascinating. So check that out. This is Pop. Dolby Atmos update on my end. Uh, my electrician stopped by, who happens to be a studio owner. In fact, wouldn't be surprised if he wound up on the show at some point. So we'll uh, we'll discuss that. Um, but he stopped by to, you know, take a look around and figure out, you know, what parts he's going to need and the plan of attack for installing isolated grounds here in my studio and updating the electrical. So that's going to happen a little bit later in the month. I'm very excited about that. You know, part of this uh, Dolby setup is going to require a number of surround speakers, uh, side left and right, back left and right, overhead, front left and right, overhead, back left and right. Yeah, so uh, eight of those, eight surrounds in that in that equation. And to do that, you need an amp to support that because these particular speakers I'm going to go with, which uh, I'll talk about at a later date, are passive speakers. So I had to find an eight-channel amp that was recommended by the people I'm working with to do this. The amp that I was looking at is normally $8,000. I know, it's like ridiculous, crazy expensive, but people I'm working with helped me find a used one on eBay for under $2,000. 
So of course I bought it. The guy bought it from 100% rating on eBay, but unfortunately the box showed up with no visible signs of damage, but inside the back rack rails were a little crushed. Not a big deal being that it's gonna sit probably at the bottom of the rack and I'm not really too concerned about rear rack rail mounting. There's a little breaker switch, however, in the back uh, because of the, the, the power rating of this amp. And the breaker switch switch was broken off. Now this, the, the housing itself I think was fine, but you know, come on, for two grand, you gotta have it working. I don't care if it's worth eight grand. If you pay that much money, everything should work. Thought it was gonna be a disaster when I started to, you know, message this guy. And at first I was like, I should just, you know, request a refund. But rather than taking the uh, aggressive approach, I took the high road and just said, hey, look, we both got 100% ratings on this. This is an unfortunate accident. I think you did the best you could in packing this and it just happened. So how about we put our heads together and figure out how to make this work because I need this thing to work and shipping stuff back out and back and forth is just a huge pain. So as it turns out, the guy used to work for the company that uh, sold the amp. So he had access to the part. So he has put in a request to get the part and he's having it shipped directly to me, which is great. So the part will get solved uh, you know, the little breaker box will get sorted out and then the rear rack rails, I'll just bend those back. I'm like, seriously, not that too concerned about it. Some of you may say, well, I would have taken a different approach and you probably would have, but you know, sometimes you just, you know, as they say, do you really want to go die on that hill? Or is that what you want to put your energy into? And I just didn't want to make a big deal out of something that really was not that important to me. Yeah, it might affect the resale value of the amp later, but hey, look, the amp was eight grand new, and if I paid like two grand for it, you know, after shipping and all that, I figure if I sell it for 1500 bucks later down the line and I get 10 years out of it, that's a good deal. You know, that works for me. So I have to weigh all that out. Uh, let's see, what else? Family went to the movies the other day for the first time in I don't know how long, a year and a half or more. Uh, saw Black Widow. Holy crap, it was loud couple things about that. Not only was it loud, but there was a low frequency rumble that started, it, it would come in, in waves, slow waves, like it would build up and then it would die down. And this was happening during the, the commercials leading up to the movie. You know, not only the, the, the pre-trailer lineup, but also the, 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 the trailers themselves and then the movie itself. And once again, in the past, I probably would have jumped up first thing and said, you know, found the management and said, hey, what's the problem here? But then I started to just sit back and go, you know what? It's not really that bad. And I'm not really going to worry about it this time. Maybe in the future, I'll worry about it. But yeah, <laughs> and once again, not a hill I want to go die on. Totally annoying at that, I will say this. And uh, this was an AMC theater in uh, Walnut Creek, California. Normally a great theater, but I don't know what the deal was. Low frequency rumble, just haunting me uh, in and out of the film. I was still able to concentrate on the film, so no big deal. But um, yeah, uh, do any of you do that? Do you run into sonic anomalies in places that you go visit? And if it's really bothering you, do you go and talk to management? I mean, I've done that in the past. I've walked into restaurants and uh, found myself in situations where, you know, air conditioning units are rumbling a certain part of a restaurant and I'll stand up and look 
you know, completely flustered and my wife knows exactly what's going on. She's like, do you hear something? Okay, go find the seat that you want to sit at and then we'll take it from there. So she's tolerant of that and she's she's aware of it. She's aware of my my affliction, my audio affliction. So, so that's it. Some random thoughts for you. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and in a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Tanner Campbell here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Tanner, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate this. This is this is fun. I listen to your podcast a lot, especially recently, and it's cool to be part of this. Well, I think you're you're a good candidate to have on because you come at this from the podcasting angle as well as a couple other angles, and we're going to get into that. But let's get a little backstory in here a bit. When did audio for you become a relevant thing, recording yourself 
editing any of that. Do you remember the Pound Puppies? Mm, no, that may have been after my time. So the Pound Puppies was a popular Saturday morning cartoon show in what I would think would have been the late 80s, early 90s, probably more like the late 80s. And do you remember the little Fisher-Price radio with the microphone attached to it? Yes. My sister and I, my, my oldest of my younger sisters, would, after Pound Puppies was over, do like a Pound Puppies in review recording <laughs> where we would talk about the episode. And a podcast was definitely not a word back then for sure. But I think me being in love with my own voice to some extent was maybe I was born with that aspect. So I also like to talk. People have told me I have the gift of gab, and I don't know if that's always uh, communicated in a friendly way or not, but I do like to talk. I like to hear myself talk, and I kind of like I kind of like to hold court. It's something that I really enjoy. So in 2009 or 10, my girlfriend and I started a podcast just for fun. I had never done a podcast prior to the Pound Puppies recordings, which were not podcasts, and it seemed like something that I could use my background in IT to at least figure out how to do. And it allowed me to put my voice out there in a way that wasn't previously possible. And it also allowed me to be creative. I didn't really consider myself to be artistic or creative in any real way. My talents were in a little bit of graphic design, web design, IT work. So I was technically minded, but that never mapped to creativity for me. And when I found podcasting, I was like, oh, well, maybe, maybe all this IT background I have will help me find a way to find like a, a, a really technical space within which I could be creative because I would understand it. I wasn't thinking music. Of course, I was thinking storytelling and, and talk. And that's how I got into it. So prior to 2010, you had no audio experience. Is that right? Zero. Yeah, none. Other than that Fisher-Price story. So how did you start? Where? How did you get up to speed so quick? Well, I appreciate you saying so quick because I don't know whether or not it was. After that little foray that only lasted maybe six months, a couple of years later, we moved to Denver, Colorado, which you saw on my LinkedIn. I opened up a production company called Secular Programming. And Secular Programming was born from a podcast that I started called The No Godcast, which was long-form interviews with atheists and theists, but it was a, it was a friendly type of show. It was, we're talking about the nature of belief, and the lack thereof, and putting those people together and trying to sort through some of that stuff. So I interviewed some pretty cool people. And from that, I found out that I actually had a knack for at least putting shows together, if not audio. I mean, didn't really know anything about audio at that time. I was just getting into things like an equalizer still terrified me. I wasn't really sure what it did. I had no concept of compression. This is like 2013, 2012. But I was getting familiar with the gear and the boards, and the routing, and how to use a little Alessi's Mix USB 4 was, I think, like my first board. And so I was becoming more familiar with it. And since I was technically minded, I kind of liked that I was becoming more familiar with equipment. And I think that kept me interested. But that podcast did really, really well. By metrics of that time period where metrics were terrible in podcasting, I had about 100,000 downloads for every episode, which is all like Webalizer stats. And of course, hugely inaccurate for a number of reasons, but it felt really good then and I didn't know any better. And so off of the success of that podcast, 
I started Secular Programming, which was a company that would go around to conferences within the atheist space and take care of the live streaming and the audio. And I really threw myself into something that I didn't fully understand, but I also knew that the people around me certainly didn't understand it, and I at least understood it better than those people who knew nothing about it. Hmm. And so I started to do audio and sound for small conferences within that space, and then I left that space. The activism space wound up not being for me, and the atheist community at that time was very, very focused on the activism of either being an atheist or something at that time was called Atheism Plus, which was Atheism Plus Activism. And I was like, I started this show to not argue with people, so I think maybe my time is up doing this show and, and working with these conferences. And so that's probably 2000 and, let's say, 15. Mm -hmm. And we moved from Denver, Colorado, because it gets incredibly expensive here. I think it was a couple years after marijuana was legalized, and just the boom of business and industry that was coming to take up space there or to start their new businesses there. Just really quick, and I, I want to address that because I think I've talked about that with one other person on Working Glass Audio. When marijuana gets legalized, industrial spaces, affordable spaces that you had a, a great, you know, you could choose from a number of them, they all get eaten up because there's grow operations, there's retail operations, and they have a lot of money. A ton. And it's, yeah. it's, almost like, it's almost like the tech boom. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was the start of, I mean, a little bit of a sidebar, the housing in Colorado right now is second highest in the nation next to only California. So we're more expensive to live in than New York, even than New York City. It's more expensive to live in Denver. And I think that that was what started it because that was kind of, I mean, like you said, like the tech boom. It was the green boom. I don't know if anybody called it that, but let's call it that. And... I was really nowhere in my career with audio at that point. I was not doing this really full-time. The conference thing was very part-time. The podcast was the kind of effort a podcast is, definitely 10, 20 hours a week worth of work. But I also held down a full-time career in IT still. And I think I was making like 50000 a year gross. And it just was not enough to continue to stay in Denver. So we moved back to Florida, but I was like, I don't want to... I don't want to go back to where we started when we moved because we'd only moved a couple of years prior because that really feels like defeat. It's like going back to home with your tail between your legs kind of deal. <laughs> and so instead, I convinced my girlfriend that we moved to St. Augustine because St. Augustine said, yeah, it's pretty and it gets a little bit of weather. It's not always super hot. And maybe I could find some kind of IT gig there and it wouldn't be going all the way back home. Well, <laughs> that didn't really work out. And we wound up going right back to where we started in, uh, in Boynton Beach, Florida. So I was pretty bummed out about that, but I stayed with the audio thing and I started another production company down there. And when I say production company, I'm talking about like in my basement, in my spare room, like that kind of production company. And I made audiobooks, which I combined with original music scores, and we called them mythosymphonies, Greek mythos for story, phony for sound, mythosymphony. And they were pretty popular. Uh, they were also born out of a podcast that was called the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast, which was another podcast I did at that time that was pretty successful. About 10,000 downloads and metrics were way better than I had about 10,000 subscribers. And it was during that period of time where, and this, I guess this is like 2016-ish, where people start to see that the audio quality of the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast was significantly better than the regular quality of podcasts that were out at that time. 
And I guess what had happened was that over the course of those years that I had been dabbling in podcasting and doing the production stuff for events, I had kind of figured some things out by accident, but I was glad. And so people started to approach me and they said, well, would you make our podcast sound better? And, and I was like, well, sure. But yeah, I'm not going to charge you that much. And if it sucks, you know, don't tell anybody. It'll be between us, you know. <laughs> Definitely have that imposter syndrome, which you and I have talked about how, like, I don't feel like an audio engineer because of the way that I came into the business. So people started to hire me, and I, ch I charged them such low fees. It's embarrassing to even talk about. I think I charged people $30 a podcast episode. It was atrocious. Uh, I look back at that, and, man, tough lesson learned. Definitely was not a full-time. But you charged something. I charged something, yeah. And those clients stuck around, and there got to be more of them. And there got to be so many of them that I really didn't have time to podcast anymore. And I found myself not quite full-time, but very healthy part-time editing podcasts for five or six regular podcasters. And this is still alongside my uh, IT career. So life happens, things change. We wind up moving to Maine. And that move to Maine happens in 2017. And it's really born out of the fact that both my girlfriend and I are we didn't want to live in Florida. There's family there for her, and there's some family there for me as well. But we didn't really like Florida. We liked our families, but Florida's hot and humid, and we're just not big fans of it. And we really missed Denver, but we couldn't afford to go back to it. And so we just wanted to go somewhere else. You know, we made a list of places we thought we want to live, and then we scored them based on, like, walkability and, like, restaurants and nightlife. And we did this whole very meticulous way of deciding which would be a good place for us. And affordability was a big part of it. And Portland, Maine ended up winning by like half a point or something. So we said, okay, let's go to Portland, Maine. Go to Portland, Maine, have a very difficult time getting settled because I go out there ahead of my girlfriend, Brittany, and I'm getting things set up. But then she has some family issues, some health issues at home that I won't go into here because it's pretty private for her. But she gets delayed in coming up. And so I'm like, oh, but I just got this place. And now you have to quit your job because of these family health issues. And now we're going to have less income. So I got to move out of this place I just moved into. And I moved into a room for rent, much cheaper. But then that guy sold that house. So I had to move again. Uh, it was very terrible getting set up in Maine. It very much felt like the wrong choice. About two months in, I'd moved twice. But we finally got settled there. And I had a job at the United Way, which is what I took when I went up there. I was a manager of IT for United Way. And... I wasn't really happy in that position. I, I had taken that position at first because I thought IT is kind of boring. Once you've fixed a printer 6,000 times, you're <laughs> kind of tired of fixing printers. <laughs> Once you're resetting passwords a million times, you know, like there's only so much that you can do on a service desk, which is mostly what I did. You ring the phone, internal corporate IT support. And I felt like I might be able to extrapolate more meaning out of my career not even thinking at all that podcasting in any capacity was a career. It was just extra side hustle money. I thought I could extrapolate more meaning if I was doing IT for a nonprofit. Well, I didn't really understand how the United Way worked. It's more like a fundraising place for other nonprofits than it is itself a nonprofit. And so I wasn't too happy in that role, and it felt just like I was doing the same thing. But I had just moved to Maine, and I didn't have any friends, and I didn't have any connections. And so it was, was going to be very difficult for me to just quit this job that I moved to take, in part. And one day I'm leaving that office and my friend Ken says to me, he points at this empty ATM space. And you know, in uh, big building breezeways, there's those big sliding doors, automatic doors. And then to the left, sometimes there's this little compartment where there's an ATM sitting. Mm -hmm. It's usually in glass. You need your card to get in. Well, it's empty. It doesn't have an ATM in it. 
And he knows that I'm doing podcast editing because I'm still doing it, even for those clients and a few more at this point. And he says, that would make a cool podcast studio. And I'm like, Ken, you don't know what you're talking about. It'd be terrible. It's glass. It'd be, be awful. I can't be talking about this. The dumbest idea I've ever heard. And then I get home and I'm like, I mean, I don't know. If I didn't have anybody in there, if I wasn't recording, it might be a cool place to edit and people would notice me and maybe I could make a business out of this thing I've been doing for a few years now as a side hustle. So I called the sign on the glass and I said, hey, can I talk to the guy who's like in charge of running the space? Turns out that the guy who's in charge of running that space, it was a real estate mogul within Portland. He owns a large percentage of the buildings there. And so I get him. Maine is, it's easy to get people in Maine. You probably talk to the governor if you want to just by ringing them <laughs> up. And I say, hey, I've got a crazy idea. And his response is, I like crazy ideas. What is it? I said, I want to put a podcast studio in your ATM space. And he goes, that is a crazy idea. Let me call you back tomorrow. I said, okay, well, that's, there's no way that's going to happen. But he calls me back and he says, I'll tell you what, I'm trying to change the way that Portland is perceived. I'm trying to kind of update it a little bit, put in trendy places. And this kind of goes with that. So I'll tell you what, I will give you that ATM space to build a little studio in for free for eight months. And if it doesn't work out, no harm, no foul, you get your shit together and you leave. No hard feelings. Yeah. But if it does work out, we'll talk about what it would cost. And I'm thinking, well, okay, I mean, like, what could it possibly cost? First of all, it's 60 square feet. It's a box. Uh, and eight months free. I mean, that gives me a chance to kind of like see if this could actually work. Okay, I'll do it. He says, there's a caveat. The only way that I can say yes to this completely is if the bank, Camden Bank, was at the base of that building and the four floors of attorneys who were the next, the rest of the building said that it was okay because you're going to be in their breezeway. They want to make sure the image is clean, those kinds of things. Common concerns, I think, for larger businesses. And we go back and forth for about two months. I'm drawn, mocking up what the space will look like. They're asking me questions like, will you be producing pornographic audio material in this space? What will the signage look like? And I'm like, all my clients are pretty boring. Here's a list of them. <laughs> you can go listen to their podcast. No pornographic anything. They said, how about you know, politically divisive stuff? And luckily at the time, I didn't have any politically divisive or even now clients. So I could say honestly no to that. So this went back and forth a couple months. And then ultimately it came back as a no. And I was a little bit heartbroken because it would have been very cool to be right there in downtown Portland to get all that foot traffic and eyes on you, you know, to say, hey, I'm here. Maybe hire me to, to do your podcast or something. But at the same time, I had hooked up with a fellow named James who owned a co-working space across the bridge in South Portland, which couldn't have been even a mile and a half, two miles away. And I was doing my audio editing and engineering at a shared, well, at a dedicated co-working desk in the, a wide open space that had terrible acoustics. It was awful. But when that decision came down from the real estate guy, I went to James and I said, hey, you've got this rectangular room in the back that is full of sewing machines and it's painted like mauve or something. It was a terrible room that wasn't being used. It was in half of the building that hadn't been remodeled yet. And I'm like, I could turn that into a podcast studio maybe. And like you're customers, your members at the co-working space could use it. That'd be like part of the deal. So if you give me that room at half of what you would give it to me normally, I'll do that thing for your members and we'll see if we can make something happen. And he said, yes. So as quickly as I could, I went out and got some framing lumber from Home Depot and some, you know, some bat and made my own little acoustic panels and hung clouds from the ceiling and 
did it all very, it was all very like, I went to Joanne's Fabrics to wrap. I mean, it was very homebrew. <laughs> yeah, I've been there for the very same reason. <laughs> but I had actually learned quite a bit at this point. I was comfortable with routing and boards. I was comfortable with equalization. I was still trying to grasp compression. It, it, was, a, it was something that was really tough for me. It was the last thing I learned, I feel like. And I felt pretty confident that if I could get people into this space, I could make a legitimate business out of it. And so I put up those baffles and those clouds, and luckily the floor already was carpeted, got a couple of like, <laughs> it was so funny. The, build, the half of the building that I was occupying used to be a podiatrist's office. And so outside of the door that I was using for the studio space were, was, a, was the waiting room, you know, the crappy magazines on the table and the ugly chairs. And I didn't have any chairs. I had kind of spent the budget. And so I grabbed these chairs from the waiting room and said, can I use these? And I remember when I first arranged the studio and put chairs in there, it was four waiting room chairs. And I think I had Rode PSA 1 mic mounts on like the arm <laughs> with, with like an SM58 on it, which I love those mics, by the way. I started the whole studio with just SM58s and they worked great for me. It was so wonky. And I should say that those clients that I had, that I had been editing for for years at that point, I went to them and I said, I want to do this. You've been clients for a long time. I'll tell you what I'll do. And I think at this point, I might have been charging them like $300 a month, which was still very cheap because they were weekly podcasts, right? I was still not charging them a lot. I said, I'll give you, and I recommend no one ever do this because this really bit me as far as recurring revenue was concerned in the future. But at the time, it seemed like the right thing to do. So I went to the clients and I said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you 50% off what you currently pay me. If you pay for a year up front, and all but one of them said yes. So I wound up with a bit of money to make all these purchases with and to get some equipment and computers and microphones and boards and XLR cables and all the stuff that I had to build to make it sound okay. Uh, th there were three windows in it. It was next to a train depot. Like this was the worst place you could have possibly built a studio. Wow. Like four times a day on a schedule they wouldn't share with me. The freight went by for like 20 minutes because it was pulling into the depot and it would slow down and take forever. It was, it was terrible. Painful. Oh my God. So painful. But the clients who are coming there to create podcasts don't really get that. And so I would come up with an excuse when the train was coming, like why we had to stop or something like that. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So I had the place all set up and this is right before I decided to do that wonky thing with the chairs. And somebody comes in from a PR firm, a pretty big PR firm, the biggest in Maine, with international clients. And, you know, to say the biggest in Maine is not, you know, saying too much, but it, but it was a definitely a, it was a great client or it could have been a great client is what I was thinking at the time. And she asked me if the podcast we're currently doing in our conference room, we're using a Blue Yeti. It's very echoey. It sounds terrible. We don't like doing it. You know, I saw the posts on Instagram that you've been putting up since you've been here. And would you do it for us? And I'm like, okay. Yes, I will. I will do that. And she's like, well, can you get us together a quote and stuff? And I'm like, 100%. I mean, like, I'll just go to the quote machine that I totally have right here, just ready right. to spit out quotes. I've done this a bunch of times. I'm a pro. <laughs> uh, and she says, okay, great. Well, just try to get me that before the end of the week. So she leaves and I'm like, oh my God, this is actually going to actually work. Like, this is going to work. So I uh, go into my computer and I'm thinking about like, what do I charge this person? They're corporate. So I can't charge them what I charge like a regular person. How do I figure this out? And at that time, I was just still in the mindset of, I need to charge an amount that helps me live. I wasn't thinking about like the overhead of having the business and like the ability to scale. None of that thought came until way later. 
And so I think that I think it was like thirty six hundred for the year or something. And I sent I send her over that quote, and she says, "This is great. Can I give you an extra eight hundred so we could do like one or two remote sessions where you could come with me to a client and we could do something on site?" I'm like, "Of course." My clients do that all the time. <laughs> uh, and I didn't say that, but that <laughs> kind of approached it with that attitude. And uh, she said, great. And she signed it. And the check came to the bank account. And I was like, holy shit. I've never been paid this much to do this. And if I could do this like four more times, this could be, although it wouldn't be a gr- great living, this could be a living. If I could just kind of make this work. I could eat noodles. I could make this work. This could work. Yeah. And as soon as that client came on, because of the nature of that client and the connections that they had in Maine, so many other clients came on. And eventually I was doing, like I had Washington Post was in the studio. Shows that were on CNN were in the studio. We had Dell came to us for like composition services. We worked with some companies out in California. We had Joan London come in and record podcasts. No and I doubt. Was like, when Joan London came in, I was like, What? <laughs> is going on here like this is i'm next to train tracks this i built this all by myself like this is this is a ghetto podcast studio that i've built and i'm pulling in like all these clients and i think it was at that point that it clicked that maybe i didn't need to feel so self-conscious about the way that i learned the things that i had learned Uh because if those companies are are happy with it then i must be doing something correct I must be doing something right enough that I had earned the right to call myself, at the very least, a podcast engineer, which is what I started calling myself. Yeah. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Well, let me ask you a little bit about that situation how are you marketing yourself? Were there other people involved? Were you doing all the work? Did you suffer burnout? No, it was all me and all social organic. Mostly I did a lot on LinkedIn. I tried to do LinkedIn lives of, I actually began throwing up LinkedIn lives of me working 
And so other podcast editors, of which there's a pretty significant amount of us out there at this point, because everybody is starting, everybody and their mother is starting a podcast. There's 4 million in the RSS directory right now. It's an insane number. I would teach podcast editors who became podcast editors because they had started a podcast and got decent at editing and wanted to make money doing that. And so I started throwing up live streams of like, this is how you put together a session. This is how you use automation or auto-ducking in your DAW, or here's some examples of all these DAWs and how you can do the same thing in all of them, and started to teach them how to use plugins and, and how to EQ and eventually how to do compression properly. And so a lot of what brought me clients wasn't just that I was there local in Maine, and I was, you know, I was going to the, all the Chamber of Commerce meetings, I was going to every place I could be public, that I could show up and say, I'm the local podcast guy. I went to everything I possibly could. And within a year, if you knew about podcasting and you lived in Portland, you knew that the Portland Pod was a podcasting studio over in the co-working space in South Portland. So locally, that worked out really well for me. But most of my attention within the podcasting community really came in 2018, 2019, when I started to do what I didn't really identify at the time as thought leadership. Because I would prognosticate about things in the industry because I, I mean, I'd been in it for, there are not that many people who have been in podcasting for as long as I have and who have filled as many roles within that space as I have. Mm -hmm. So I, I would prognosticate a bit on what was going to happen. And sometimes I'd be right and sometimes I'd be wrong, but I was doing this thought leadership. I wasn't meaning to do it, but I was writing a lot about it. I was writing a lot about EQing, about editing, about practices, about growing your business, about how to scale and how when you first price yourself, you should be looking at, you know, how much of every dollar that you earn every hour is going to your electric bill, is going to your rent, is going to like all the things you have to pay for before you pay yourself. And that got me noticed within the professional podcast editors community, which really kind of bumped my, the level at which people are aware I exist. Popularity, I don't know if that's a good word, but my knownness. And that felt pretty great. And then COVID came around <laughs> and COVID was a funny thing. I mean, it wasn't funny at all, but it was funny in this sense that right before COVID, I had made a huge investment. I was like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go ahead and expand this studio because I have, there's just one of me and I'm getting more work than one person can do. And so I'm going to need to do something about that. So I made a $30,000 arrangement with the guy who owned the co-working space. And I was like, look, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll sign a two-year lease with you if you pay for the build-out, like the physical build-out of this waiting room, which was still a waiting area at that time, even though I'd kind of taken it over with you know, my own stuff. If you can build these walls to spec, resilient channels, you know, green glue, double layer, all the wall, you know, all that stuff. If, if you can do that, if you can build me a control room and a talent space, I'll sign a two-year lease and I'll take care of all the other acoustic treatments. And it cost me about 30 grand to do that. And I think it cost him just about the same to do the actual build out. And it, it hit us really hard, us, the Royal us, it was just me, because it was all the profit I had made from the previous year. But I was like, okay, no big deal. I'm okay doing that because 2020 is going to be great. It's going to be our year. <laughs> January and February will be terrible, but March, March is when things will start to come around, right? And then they came around all right, but not in the way that I thought they were going to. So within, I don't know, within six weeks, we lost almost every client. I think we lost like 90% of our clients because they're all corporate, but they're also all like, Maine is very different 
People are very friendly. They're very close relationships. It's only got 1.3 million people in it. The city of Portland only has 65,000 people in it, and it's their biggest city. Everybody knows you. You're really known and judged by the quality of your character as other people talk about you behind your back, you know, in good ways, which was the case for me, thankfully. <laughs> and I think I earned that. But there was an opportunity for me to say, well, your contract doesn't say you can go, right? Like I could have done that. But when they came to me, I'm like, like, how am I going to tell them they can't cancel their contracts? How am I going to, in good faith, in any kind of ethical way, how can I do that? Like, I, I would be right, I guess, from a business standpoint, but I can't. They're, I, they're struggling too. I think like 95% of businesses in Maine are family-owned, small businesses. So everybody was struggling. And so I let them all go. The ones who wanted to and a few stayed. And it was not enough. And we struggled for a really long time until about October. Now, in January of that year, I reached out to a platform called AppSumo. Do you know AppSumo? I do, yeah. And I said, hey, you, you don't have too many courses on your platform. I'd love to create a podcast editing course. I think people really like it. Podcasting is getting popular. I think it'd be a good time for it. That was in January. I never heard back from them. In October, I got an email from AppSumo. And they said, we'd love to have this course. And I'm like, oh, shit, that's great. But I don't think I'm going to make an editing course. I don't think that's what anybody wants now. So instead, I convinced them to let me do, sorry, how to become a podcast engineer was the original course. And then I thought, well, so many people in these last six months have started podcasts and all of them are terrible because they're all doing it on Zoom and they don't know anything. So what if I create a course for you called Learn to Edit Your Own Podcast? And it would just go over equalization, denoising, loudness normalization, compression, and spitting that thing out to an MP3 that sounds pretty good. Mic technique, things like that were mixed in there. And they said, that sounds great. So I built that out and with I think I built it in two weeks because I don't know if any, anybody's listening has ever sold anything on AppSumo, but they're like, yep, it's a go and we need it in two weeks. And it was like, on, it was built on rails, but I tried so hard to make it the best thing I could. And when it launched, it just, everything it could have possibly done to sell out. You can't sell things out on AppSumo, but people effing loved it. They loved it. Hmm. And I got so much money off of that course that it literally saved me from having to close the business. And it made me realize, huh, there's another vertical here that I didn't really know was here. And so I was able to keep the studio opened by selling online courses and giving live lessons. That was how I survived COVID as a business. That's amazing. And, and survived it to such an extent that in, I guess it would have been early 2021, when the landlord of the home we rented told us he was selling the property, Brittany and I had to make a decision. Are we going to rent another place in Maine or can we go back now? Could we go back to Denver now? And we ran the numbers and we could. So we said, all right, we're moving back to Denver. And I closed up shop at the studio, came over here. And now I almost exclusively in the capacity that you met me was towards the beginning of 2021. I'm almost all teaching at this point. Before you, we talk about Denver, the return to Denver, I'd like to just examine Portland a little bit. What was your takeaway from that experience about pretty much the whole thing? I mean, there, there must have been a certain amount of confidence that you gained from that experience because it really did well. Yeah, it did very well. And I think what I learned from that was that I was more savvy with business than I was when I got there. I remember there was this, it was a life-changing conversation that I had with a friend of mine. We were sitting, we were sitting outside some restaurant having oysters, as you do, uh, oysters and clams in Maine, as you do. Of course. And he was like, well, how, what's your hourly? 
And I told him, and he says, well, what's your, like, what are your costs? Let's go over this. So we go over it and we go over it. And we, and we, what we get down to is what my net take home is. And it's like 18 bucks an hour. And this is like within the first year of the studio. And I'm like, that's not good. I don't want to be making $18. That's a terrible rate for me to be making in this. I should be making $50 an hour at least. Like that's, that's what I should be paying myself. And so when the day that conversation happened, I shifted from thinking about my business as a job and I started to think about it as if I ever want to be able to hit my capacity and have enough money to hire the next person and have enough profit margin there that when they hit their capacity, I can hire another person and that there's always money available to buy upgrades or renew licenses and all these things, I began to really think about my business as a business instead of as like this side hustle. And I went from being this entrepreneurial side hustle guy, which I'd been for a long time. I'm leaving a lot of things out about other businesses I'd started in my life, some of which were successful, most of which failed. I started to become a business owner. And I think if it hadn't been for the experience in Maine, there is absolutely no way that I would be, I would have become as savvy as I have become. There were a lot of difficult lessons. I mean, I had like three conversations about bankruptcy during COVID. Three separate and distinct conversations about calling it quits because I couldn't pay the bills. Mm. And going through that kind of stuff teaches you a lot about yourself. It teaches and it forces you to either realize that this is not going to work and you're going to need to fail and you're going to need to move on. Or it gives you the opportunity to double down and say, uh, no, I don't think so. I'm going to figure something out. And I owe a lot to that experience, to Maine, to the Portland Pod was the name of the studio, and to James, who gave me that chance, and, and even to Ken, who made that ridiculous suggestion that I should be in an ATM space for my first recording studio. Maine changed my life. So I think very positively of that experience, really. So now you're in Denver, Colorado, and you're back. This is your almost like the 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 prodigal son returns kind of situation. Uh, We hope, yeah, sure. (laughs) Stronger, better, smarter. What are you doing now? So when I got here, I was, of course, we met on Clubhouse. You mentioned that at the outset. Clubhouse really almost equal to how much my writing and the classes and the live streams, almost as much as that had helped me become more known. Clubhouse, maybe two times that. And I met all kinds of people that I'd never met before. And I really stepped into the role of true thought leader within the podcasting space. It was the first time, probably just a few months ago, where I got comfortable with people referring to me in that way. Like I had kind of referred to myself as a talking head before, but when other people started to refer to the stuff I was doing as thought leadership pieces or started to talk about me as an authority within the space, that really didn't happen until I started to spend those 30, 40 hours a week on Clubhouse hosting workshops and answering questions and Q&A panels and AMAs. That really helped a lot. And by the time I got to Denver, which I want to say was, I think May 5th was when we arrived, Mm -hmm. it was firmly planted in my mind that I needed to stop doing post-production work. And I needed to start doing more courses, more teaching, more training. And I needed to start making my own stuff. I finally was in a position that I could get back to making my own stuff. Because when Seder Productions was successful as a side hustle editing thing, I stopped podcasting. And that was like 2016. And so I hadn't done a serious production for myself since then. And I saw the the growth as thought leadership and teaching courses. And that vertical in the business was so strong 
Then I realized when I got here, I needed to start phasing clients out who I still had. I needed to start letting those contracts expire and not renew them because I didn't need the money anymore. And I really wanted to get back into making stuff for myself, which is, I think, one of the first reasons that we started talking was your Dolby Atmos project. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, this dude's like rebuilding his whole house. This Adobe Amos, I got to know more more about this. I keep saying Adobe, sorry, but Adobe Amos. (laughs) And, you know, you had popped into a couple of rooms before. And I remember you made the joke about Brittany and I going across the country. It was like Tanner and baby cakes to go to Colorado (laughs) or something. Right. And her and I, her and and I still laugh about that. Whenever she hears your voice, she's like, is that, is that the baby cakes goes to Colorado guy? And I'm like, (laughs) yeah. Uh, so Sorry, audience. I'm, a little bit of an inside joke there from Clubhouse of me kind of just giving giving Tanner a little tease. Yeah, the, the wifey's name is nickname is Baby Cakes. So yeah, so, Tanner and Baby Cakes went to Colorado. So I and we yeah, stayed. So I started to just go, oh, Tanner and Baby Cakes. You know. <laughs> so uh, now it's I am very excited to be here starting a different business, standing up a home studio. And in the next three weeks or so, starting in earnest, producing stuff within the binaural space for podcasting is really advanced in a lot of ways. We talked about subscriptions on Apple, I think, last week when we talked on the phone, and how you are now uploading lossless stereo wave files to Apple if you're hosting like premium content, because you can now charge for subscriptions on Apple, Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm. And so that opened up the possibility. I was thinking, gosh, I've been really interested in this immersive storytelling thing, the binaural 3D stereo. I really want to explore that. And we haven't really talked about it, but the Legends Missing Whiskey podcast was born out of a real genuine interest in mythology and culture and philosophy. And the most fun thing about that podcast was that I got to introduce people to cultures and stories they'd never heard before. And I really loved that all of the episodes were scored end-to-end. They had completely original music scores, as did the whiskey reviews that we did on the show. And in, I want to say, December December of 2019, maybe, or it may have been 2020, I created what I thought was my first immersive podcast. Uh, It was for Myths, Folklore, and Fairy Tales, which is a podcast you can still find and kind of acts like an archive for old stories that I've told. So you can really, as you listen to it, see my engineering skills change over time, (laughs) although they're all jumbled and out of order. So it's probably funny to listen to now. And when I did this, I said, all right, I'm going to pull out all the stops and I'm going to do the best thing that I can possibly do. And I'm going to see how long it takes and what the end result is. So I picked a story from Basque culture, which is like that division between Spain and and France. And it was called the Bugle Horn of Roldan, which I think I pronounced wrong for the entire story. I think it's actually Roldan, but I called it Roldan. And I spent $3,000 on that production, that single 45-minute episode. I bought stuff from places like Boom Library. I did everything I could to hire voice actors that I felt like fit the roles. Like I pulled out all the stops, took me 80 hours and cost me three grand. And I was exhausted at the end of it, but I was also like, I have got to get back to this shit. Mm -hmm. This is what I want to do. This is fun. Like, I'm not having fun editing corporate interview podcasts. Like, that's not very exciting. It's a little soul-sucking, if I'm going to be honest. Sorry, clients. I think (laughs) maybe we've had this conversation before. I don't know. You probably know it's soul-sucking. You work there. And now I'm in a position to do that. So that is the goal now. Stood up a new company out here, just gave a new name to the home studio and working on three different projects with three different teams. 
to try to pitch something real serious to some of the larger networks out there and say, look, we've got this show. Here's a trailer. Here's a six-episode script. We'd really like to do this with you. What do you say? And um, I'm really swinging for the fences on it because it is what I want to do. You know, uh, this is interesting to me on a number of levels because it makes me realize as a podcaster that there's so much more information out there. I mean, just you can do such a deep dive into all things podcast related, whether it be audio, whether it be stats or trends or whatever. I mean, it's a whole separate operation unto itself. You know, when I'm comparing it to music recording or people who work on TV and film, and I just feel like for those of you out there listening who have had your go at music or or TV and film or games, and you're still trying to find your footing, but you love audio, this is a legit moneymaker that you could go down, a path you could go down. It can be creative. Sure, it has its soul-sucking moments, like you say, editing corporate podcasts. But I mean, there are um, opportunities, we'll just say, out there for podcasting that go really far and wide. 100%. And I think that there's a very specific window that is open right now that is, as we see Spotify really getting more serious, as we see a lot of social audio platforms like coming up, we see a lot of action happening, a lot of money coming into the podcasting space. And I think that between right now and next summer, you're going to see a lot of large acquisitions by larger media companies of smaller media franchises like Call Me Daddy of the Barstool Sports Network was purchased for $60 million by Spotify, I think. That's a podcast? It's a podcast. I mean, it's a podcast network, but that's one podcast on the network. You know, they spent all that money on Joe Rogan. Spotify spent a lot of money buying up Filipino podcasters to try to get a grip in that part of the world, in that market of the world. And they are looking to, this is a guess, but what I think that they are trying to do is create this kind of like Netflix, Cinemax-style closed walled garden of an experience that draws you in as a creator because they have some unique tools. You know, they've got Green Room, which is now Spotify's version of Clubhouse. They've got the ability to host for free with Anchor, instant monetization through dynamic ad insertion with Anchor if you have enough listeners, or just ad insertion of an Anchor spot at the head of at the pre-roll of your episode. They've got ways to interact and take voice messages from people who are listening to your podcast through Anchor or through anywhere. They can all go to the Anchor website and leave you a message that you can cut into your episodes. And the reason that I think that Spotify is doing such a good job right now is that one of the problems with most platforms is that they're one thing. Clubhouse is one thing. It's a social audio platform. Simplecast, Captivate, they're one thing. They're a podcast hosting provider. But Spotify is a lot of things. And as a creator, you do have to do a lot of things. And it is very helpful for those lots of things to be in one place. Facebook getting into the podcasting game, monetization game, them launching their own social audio platform. I think it's called Facebook Private Rooms or something. I can't remember. But that's live now. They're integrating podcast RSS feeds into pages now, although it's a little bit of a slow rollout and a selective process and limited to the U.S. at the moment. But these platforms that are capable of giving you a lot more in one place and for a pretty affordable price are, I think, posing a pretty big threat to, you know, like somebody who's a podcast hosting provider. Well, okay, yeah, but what else are you? 
Yeah. And that's going to be interesting to watch unfold. Now, Spotify audience owns Megaphone, which is the hosting platform for working class audio and has been for a couple of years now. So it's interesting to see what happens there. I've seen Spotify buy up a lot of different companies and I'm not going to say it's good or it's bad, but something I, I keep my eye on. Well, I mean, I was, I'm on record, I think back in when they first made that Gimlet acquisition and when they first bought Anchor, which happened, those things happened pretty close to one another. I wrote an article about what they were doing. And I remember people saying that they thought I was crazy for thinking. I think the article's still online. But my premise at that point was what they have just done is they've bought an amazing production arm and then they bought a talent farm and they're going to attract podcasters, most of which will be terrible and won't be great talent, but they're going to find podcasters that are good talent. And they're going to have the production chops now to help make that talent even better. And they're going to start creating Spotify premium exclusive shows. I said that in like, I want to say it was maybe 2017. Whenever they made that acquisition, I was like, that's coming. They're, they're playing to win. And even with Anchor, which I was really down on for a long time, I'm not down on it anymore. Like now I, I even more so see what they're doing. And I'm kind of excited that they're doing it. I know a lot of creatives aren't because it's Spotify and they're evil and, you know, big company stuff. But I think that the time of podcasters, really any creative, and I think that podcasting is very behind in this regard. Mm -hmm. I think the time of creators creating for free and being leveraged by these platforms, I think that that time is coming to an end, hopefully soon, because we work real hard. And we produce things that help the, I mean, the whole reason Spotify brought podcasters on in the first place was because they needed more users and they don't have to pay podcasters anything. Well, so let's bring this back around to those that are listening who are thinking about getting involved in podcasting. What would your advice be to some, let's, let's speak, say, to the students that are listening in the various schools that listen to the show Let's talk to them first. What is your thought about making a living as a podcast engineer? I think it's a pretty good way to go. I think that there are various flavors of what is considered a podcast engineer. This is kind of argued about a lot within the podcast editing space. All of us will call ourselves podcast editors. Not all of us will call us podcast, ourselves podcast engineers because engineer denotes EQing and compression and kind of having a deeper understanding, whereas a podcast editor might just be someone who takes out the things which are mistakes and puts your intro and your outro in, your mid-roll stuff, and then sends it away. Mm -hmm. So podcast engineers, I think, are what most of us are. But to answer your question in short, I think it's a great space right now to be making a career in. But especially if you are coming out of, I guess we'll say, audio engineering school and you're looking at podcasts and wondering how you might be able to get into that, first of all, I think editing is very, going to be very easy for you. You're, you are going to know a lot more coming out of proper engineering school than most podcast editors or even podcast engineers know because none of us, very few of us, have that training. So you're going to be able to outperform most common podcast engineers right out of the box, and you'll probably be able to work faster than than most of us can as well, because you'll be more familiar with the tools. You'll have workflows down. Most podcast editors are not, they're not terribly fast unless they're doing things like working at like three times speed or something, which, which still boggles my mind. I still can't do that. I see people edit podcasts at two times speed and I'm like, what are you doing? How are you getting the timing right? This feels like cheating. Don't do this. <laughs> so I think if you wanted to get into podcast editing and engineering, I think it's, it would be a great thing for you to do. I think it's an easy market for you to break into. You definitely have the skill sets to do it. However, 
if you're at all creative, which I imagine if you went to audio engineering school, you probably have some kind of creative love. I know a lot of people who go have a general interest in music. But if you feel like you've got the chops to produce a story or to, to convey an important message, I think now, this window of time, these next six months, or maybe this next year, I think getting into the creating your own artistic production space, like I think that is a great place to be. And if you are somebody who really knows your stuff and has a passion for storytelling or wants to get a message out there, I think that these next 12 months, you could, you could really do a lot to maybe even start your own kind of mini media empire. I mean, you think about networks like, well, let's take Q Code for an example. Mm -hmm. Q Code is making some amazing stuff in the world of podcast audio. It's immersive. It's binaural. It's amazing. And there are small productions too. For example, the Magnus Archives is an audio drama. Audio dramas are having a huge comeback right now. I mean, say radio dramas. Audio dramas are having a real boon in interest. I think the most growth in any podcast style from 2020 to 2021 was within the fiction space. And I think a lot of those were audio dramas. So if you think you've got the chops to tell a great story, man, I would love to see you not be a podcast engineer. And I'd like to see you instead skip that and go to creating something really amazing and seeing where it takes you. Because I tell you what, it'll be way more rewarding than being a podcast engineer. I'll tell you that. It is interesting just hearing your story and comparing it to my own. I mean, coming into podcasting, obviously, I came at it as an audio professional to begin with and was like, oh, psh, editing, mics, come on, hold my beer, right? <laughs> right. You know, I could do this in my sleep. And really, it's a matter of like, okay, this is a new workflow, like mixing. You figure out what works, what doesn't. So what I feel that I'm lacking in is... I feel like I need to up my game as someone who's a podcaster to be more aware of what the other possibilities are out there. Not only for for this podcast, but just to consider like, oh, that could be another side hustle of doing another podcast. Before this podcast, I edited a human resources podcast and was like, this is like a walk in the park. And and we knew that as podcast editors and engineers, it was something I wrote about a couple of years ago in an article I called Accountability as a Service. Mm -hmm. And that being like the real key to surviving as a podcast editor. And what I posited was that proper audio engineers are going to figure out that they need to be adding this service to their in-studio offerings. They're going to start reaching out to corporate. They're going to start hosting podcasting spaces. As soon as they figure out that they can do it and that we really don't know that much about audio, like they're going to be able to sweep the floor with us. And so if you really want to be successful as a podcast engineer, podcast editor, whatever you want to call yourself, a podcast professional, one of the things that you need to offer that, that most audio engineers who own studios are not going to be able to do is that accountability part where you, you, you become a partner in their success instead. I think gone are the days where somebody just sends you a podcast episode, you edit it, send it back, thanks a lot, where's my money? And that's the end of that relationship. Mm -hmm. I think that the podcast editors and engineers who are able to form almost like a, a team relationship with their clients and will go out of their way to say, hey, I've got some thoughts on your latest episode. Can we talk about it? I actually think there's a possibility here for you to do X, Y, Z. And I'd love 15 minutes of your time to help you make that work for you. Those are the kinds of podcast engineers that are going to be able to survive, I think, in the long term. 
Interesting. And, and this is also a space where you can get into it as an independent contractor, starting out of your apartment, doing a number of, of tasks. But there's also a lot of companies that have departments that need people to do this kind of a thing too. So it's there's kind of a, a couple different ways to do it, a couple different ways to go. If you're independent-minded, I would say, probably try to figure it out on your own if you're not a, a, a nine-to-fiver at heart. Yeah, and corporate is where the money really is. At, at this point, and I think that COVID has something to do with this and StreamYard and LinkedIn have something to do with this, I think people have gotten very comfortable as independent creatives doing it themselves and thinking it's good enough. And I think all these Zoom recordings we see through StreamYard and on LinkedIn did a lot to reinforce in a lot of people's minds what a podcast was. Mm -hmm which is really just a side-by-side -side video recording of a Zoom meeting. That's what a lot of people think podcasts are. And they're not willing to pay that much because there's technology that's coming out too that is, it makes the value proposition of, so when I was at the Portland Pod, my per episode rate was 270 for non-corporate. It was 690 for corporate per episode. Now, the corporate is happy to pay that because of the relationship that I was able to build with them and and the benefit that I brought to them and the ability that I had to help make those podcasts successful in reaching the KPIs that they wanted and the, the end results that they wanted. But it is a real hard sell to tell somebody who, you know, just Joe down the street who wants to have a podcast about the news, it's really hard to tell Joe that even though it's your time and it's worth this much, mm -hmm. that $150 to $200 per episode is a good value proposition because what Joe can do is he can drop his audio into Descript and he can edit it like a word processor. He can he can put it out there at minus 16 lofts or whatever he wants, push of a button, and he can do that for $30 a month. So why is he going to pay you? So if you do get into the audio engineering space within podcasting, podcast engineering space, your aim should be at corporate because it's a pretty tough living if you're working with independent creators who frankly don't have any money because they don't know how to monetize their shows. It's another thing I know you know I talk about. Oh, yeah. So that's a whole nother thing. That could be a whole nother podcast in itself. Well, so what do you call yourself now, title-wise? Podcast engineer? Uh, no, not anymore. Not since I came to Colorado and not since I've started in this mission of producing my own stuff. I am now a podcast strategist because I will still take those meetings and I will consult. And I'm a producer. I am very comfortably sliding into the role of producing my own stuff. And I don't know that I could possibly be happier. And I owe it to that long journey from 2009 to pretty much 2020 of podcast editing and learning in the hard knocks, right? And figuring it out. If none of that had happened, the Pour Them Pod hadn't happened, if all the moving around hadn't happened, I wouldn't be able to finally be doing what I feel like is what I really want to be doing, which is making my own art and feeling pretty good about getting back to it. When you say producer, would you say podcast producer? I think that they are going to continue to be called podcasts for a while, but I think of them more as audio productions than I do podcasts. I think that podcast is going to change a lot in the coming, like, let's say three to five years, that they're going to be more depth of story driven than like casual conversation, Joe Rogan type things. I think people are going to begin to put a lot more work into telling immersive, compelling stories. And that by doing that, we're going to have to call them something different. Just like now you make the distinction between a podcast and an audio drama, mm -hmm. even though an audio drama is currently being delivered the same way a podcast is, and so you can call it a podcast, there's a breed of creator that is emerging that wants to take 
streaming audio and audio stories to a completely different level. And they want to do more with it than just a quote unquote podcast. So I think that I'm a producer of audio dramas for now. Okay. Maybe that's what I'll say. Okay. Well, where can people find out more about you if they have questions and they want to maybe follow up with you? Sure. You can always email me directly, tanner at tannerhelps.com. You can find me on pretty much any social platform to include Clubhouse with that handle, Tanner at Helps. Tanner Helps. Easiest way to find me. Very good. Tanner, this has been great. I had a slight idea of your journey, but this really fills in a lot of the gaps. And really, really great to talk to you about this and piece it all together in my brain. Well, thanks for having me, man. I've had a really good time, really. Excellent. Well, all right. You take care and thank you so much. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Tanner Campbell here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. If you do like the show, I know that my request for this is becoming repetitive. For those of you listening time and time again, but seriously, if you do like the show, head on over to iTunes, leave a review. A written review would be ideal. But if you don't have time and you just want to leave five stars, that's great too. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith with his fantastic voice there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.